The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Welcome tonight. We're glad that you're here. Glad that you're online with us as well. We know several are going to be watching that way, and I hope others will come in, but we're going to try to start here right on time. So... Uh, just think with me for a moment as we begin our service. Uh, I want to thank Naomi too for her music tonight uh, about the angels who came to speak to some shepherds uh, the night in which our Savior was born. And uh, I've heard a lot about them in the last week, hearing some preaching and a couple of different uh, ideas about why did God choose to go to the shepherds with the message uh, of the birth of Christ. And uh, I was just reading in uh, Jack McMahon's uh, letter uh, uh, from New Zealand, and he said something about this. He said, Why the shepherds? Bethlehem was not far from Jerusalem, where the daily sacrifices at the temple required a significant number of sheep. The shepherds of Bethlehem were quite likely raising the sheep for the temple offerings. How appropriate it seems that the shepherds should be the first to know of the birth of Jesus, the Savior, who was also the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And I thought that was an interesting observation. He quotes from John 1 and verse 29, that quotation that I just alluded to. Uh, Another... uh, view on this or a kind of explanation or perhaps reasoning why is that the shepherds were not the highest members of society. They were the maybe least educated. They were the ones who had the most menial of jobs, you know, living outside, outdoors. I mean, keeping watch over their flocks at night so that, uh, you know, thieves wouldn't come in and steal and wolves would not come and kill. Um, but it was not a, you know, it wasn't a high society kind of job. But you know, God's salvation is not for high society kind of people alone. It's for everybody, really. But uh, the Bible does inform us that not many mighty, not many noble, not, not many wise are called. But God uses the lowly and the what is foolish in the eyes of the world to bring glory to himself. And so he announced to the shepherds. I might add my own little thought to that, and that is that the, the shepherds, uh, I guess it would be appropriate to tell them about the one final lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world because after he was done with his sacrifice in just over three decades, uh, they would uh, not have as many have to have as many sheep for sacrifices because there wouldn't be any sacrifices. Now, there were for a number of years afterwards, but that whole system ceased by 70 A.D. And so uh, their uh, profession was uh, liable to have fewer uh, employers and employees needed over the long run because of less sacrifices of lambs. So, announced to them. But I think the other two reasons are, are more apropos for what the Lord was doing. Well, let's pray as we begin tonight and join me if you would, please. Our Father in heaven, it's a joy for us to be here and to gather around your word and song. Tonight, Lord, we want to pause just for a moment uh, aside from the 
joyous remembrance of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And instead, we want to pray with our brother Andy, who would be here if he could, but he's with his father right now, and his father is not well, has uh, end-stage non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so this news uh, reached him just recently, perhaps even today, and has made a little gloomy for him and his family this Christmas season. And so we gather our thoughts and prayers up to you and around him that you might encourage our brother and help him to be a minister for the sake of the gospel, to bring the love of the Savior to his father, that he might know him before uh, the end of his life is recorded in the books of history. Our God and Heavenly Father, please may the Word of God have free course and be glorified with uh, that man and with his son, as with all of us, we pray. And now, Lord, we turn back our attention to this joyous occasion, remembering the reason that we're here, the reason that we're taking out an hour of our time on Christmas Eve when we could be, oh, uh, with the world merrymaking in some other way. But, Lord, this is the way we want to spend our time, to acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ. And although we have few here this year because of COVID, we have more online because of the same reason. We thank you for the technology that allows us to to produce this service that way. And yet, Lord, whether here or there, it's our request that your name would be lifted up and glorified in our hearts Even if the world cannot see us, even if our testimony is not huge, we still are a light because He is the light who came into the world to lighten every man. And Father, we pray that He will be glorified again in our midst. May we recognize what Jesus, who He is and what He has done on our behalf. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew's Gospel, please. We spent some time already this past couple of weeks reading in Luke, and so we want to pick up the other major Gospel that has the birth account of our Lord. And we'll read through this, well, starting in verse 18 this evening. Uh, last, was it uh, last week I spoke on the genealogy, so here we are. Uh, Just after the genealogy, we pick up at verse number 18. And it says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child by the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be Fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name 
Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. That is indeed what he did. A just man and he was he obeyed the Lord. That was a fruit of, of that in his life. And of course, earlier on, he was contemplating how he could marry a young woman who seemed to have been unfaithful to him, but his was the unique and one and only situation in which that was not the case in this world and in the world history. So, amazing situation indeed. All right, let's continue on in our reading in Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And after I finish this reading, I will invite anyone who would like to offer a Christmas testimony to do so. We might want to use the roaming microphone for that. John, if you could help us with that at that time. So after verse 12, we'll take a couple of testimonies. Starting in chapter 2 then, in verse number 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Uh, lots of uh, news uh, in these recent days about this uh, conjunction of Jupiter and uh, Saturn, which is supposed to be the, quote, Christmas star. Uh, it's not clear to me that it would have coincided exactly with the birth of Christ, for one. Uh, for a second, the, this looks to me to be a supernatural kind of event. Um, I could be wrong about that, but... Uh, it is still nonetheless an interesting uh, phenomena in the heavens to observe this, the uh, planets as they make their rotation about uh, our sun. But uh, this is the sun, the S-O-N, that we're really concerned about here tonight and uh, his birth. Now this is uh, a, a narrative that doesn't really give you an idea of how long it was in verse 1. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there's some time span here, it's not clear just exactly how long it is uh, before, uh, between the birth of the Lord in chapter 1 and then 
this uh, about Herod, but apparently it took a little bit of time for these wise men, as they're called, to traverse the distance that they did and uh, in, in response to the star. And, and presumably, it seems that the star, according to what they're saying, appeared around the time of the birth of the Lord. And so that's why Herod was inquiring about when it, when it appeared, as we'll read uh, in just a few moments, uh, and how he used that to calculate what he was going to do next. But before that, any Christmas testimonies? I wish I could invite you folks uh, at home. You might, uh, you might just take a moment to think about what you would say or share it with a family member if they're nearby or perhaps uh, call somebody up after the service and say, hey, Pastor asked us to share a little word of thanks or testimony about Christmas and what it means to you. And so I, you, know, you could do that after the meeting. But how about in the meeting? Anybody want to share with us? Steve. All right. Is that working, John? Put 11 back up there, David. Two minus five or so. Is it on, John? Is it the green? Or is it muted? Okay. Is it muted? Test it. When, um, when sin manifested itself in the garden, um, God had every right to wipe the slate clean right there and then and, and start over. But his love for what he created, uh, and I'm thankful for this, mm-hmm. got precedent at that time. And the love that he had for what he created continues to this day. And why that love is shown on me is I can't comprehend it. Uh, why me? You know, mm-hmm. I had a family of six, and I'm the only one that, uh, if lack of a better term, stayed true to the faith, if I can put it that way. And why he chose me and, and sh- continues daily to pour his love out on me and my family is just... And to see the grandkids come along now, see the love and the, that is poured out from him. I'm so thankful. And Amen. to the birth of the Redeemer that we celebrate, I'm so glad he was a Redeemer. Mm-hmm. And that, that what he accomplished at Calvary was sufficient to, to cover my sin and everyone else's. And, and the love that came down from heaven that we celebrate tonight just amazes me. Amen. Steve, thank you. You can leave that on. We'll distribute it to whoever else wants to share a testimony. Looks like Becky is is ready. I was going to say in response, Steve, to what you said, I know not why God's wondrous grace to me He has made known. Yeah, but I know whom I have believed, and <laughs> glad that He was born a Redeemer uh, and not only a Judge, because uh, He will be taking up the office of Judge at some point in the future. But those who are redeemed need not fear that office of our Lord Jesus. Becky. I just wanted to say I'm so thankful to be sitting here, first of all. Amen. Um, and I give thanks to every one of you that's here and those who are listening online, whoever they are. They double our number here, at least, that's I'm sure. fabulous. So. And I just wanted to share um, from a devotional booklet that it's a book actually my sister gave me last Christmas and it's something for every day so this was yesterday's 
as we sit beneath a beautifully decorated tree and eat the rich food of celebration, we must not let ourselves forget the horror and violence at the beginning and end of the Christmas story. The story begins with a horrible slaughter of children. Rachel. Mm, and ends with the violent murder of the Son of God. The slaughter depicts how much the earth needs grace. The murder is the moment when that grace is given. Look into that manger and see the one who came to die. Hear the angel's song and remember that death would be the only way that peace would be given. Look at your tree and remember another tree. One not decorated with shining ornaments, but stained with the blood of the Son of God. Mm. As you celebrate, remember that the pathway to your celebration was the death of the one you celebrate. And be thankful. Amen. I heard, I saw that earlier today. Yes, you did. <laughs> you sent it to me. <laughs> That was good. Good then and good now again. Yes. Yes. This fellow is a pastor and he just has a way with words. Yes. Very nicely done. Share that with everybody. Very good. Anybody else want to share a Christmas testimony? just share uh, one of my favorite verses to think about at Christmas, um, which is uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And um, just it just always is amazing to me that he gave up all of that so that we who are the ones who are uh, needy, that through his poverty we, we can be made rich. And, and aren't we? <laughs> we are. And, um, and then uh, another verse that I have been putting on our Christmas uh, notes this year is uh, uh, Psalm, Psalm 33:21, um, For our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. And so even though it's been a, you know, everybody talks about what a difficult year it has been, and of course it has, but we can still rejoice in his holy name. And so I'm thankful for that. Amen. Is there anyone else that wants to share something this evening? All right. Let's turn our Bibles then to... Matthew chapter 2 again, verse 13 now. We'll continue on and read all the way through the end of chapter 2. and we'll, We will have covered the birth narrative in both Gospels in our church services then. Matthew 2, 13. Speaking again about the, the wise men. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, Flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. 
When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah, the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. We don't have any idea how many children were slaughtered in that. It could have been ten, dozens, you know, a hundred. We have no idea. But it was certainly an awful, awful, awful situation. From two years old and under, every parent of a little baby was bereft of their child. Because of the greed for power of one Herod, fearing that he would lose his hegemony to some young upstart king prophesied in the Hebrew Scriptures. He ought to have known better. The Hebrew Scriptures predicted Cyrus ahead of time and all the kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Alexander the Great, the Romans, and none of those prophecies ever failed. How he thought he would cause one to fail pure hubris, unbelief and rebellion against God, was it not? Verse 19, And when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. You see, they wanted the child dead. Instead, they were dead. God saw to it. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. May God bless that reading of His Word. That is a wonderful account. Never get tired of reading that uh, history. Uh, And that is why we're here. Those historical events uh, occurred. It always befuddles me when people in the world try to deny the existence of Jesus, uh, His person and work. Uh, the The history books are clear. The history book is also very clear that Christ came. And the effect that he had on the world is just one proof of that. Just an amazing turnaround that that God wrought in the world through the work, person, and presence of Jesus Christ. All right. Well, with that, I'd like to uh, spend just a few minutes, and I probably have more than I uh, should have to speak to you tonight, but I trust that it will be a blessing to you. I want to speak about a message that I have entitled The Impossibility of salvation, the impossibility of salvation. And you'll see, and you already probably can kind of guess where I'm going with this, 
But let me just uh, give you uh, a few words of thought because I think it will highlight in your mind what Christ has done for us and uh, help us in our worship of Him, to really know Him and to really be thankful to Him. Once humanity departed from our Creator's ways, we came into an impossibly bad situation. Steve already alluded to it tonight. God had said to our first parents, Adam and Eve, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. That's in Genesis 2 and verse 17. After rebelling against God's direction, however, they still had the power of procreation. And so therefore their natural, before rather, their natural vitality ran its course. They began to create a race we know as humanity. Because of their departure from God, every member of this race is doomed from the beginning of life to suffer and to die. I was thinking of an illustration of this. It happened back in February of 2003, just before my wife and I were married. We remember watching a television with horror as we saw the breakup of the space shuttle Columbia over Texas. The debris was spread for 2,000 square miles. None survived, obviously, that disaster. It broke up as it returned to Earth, killing the seven astronauts on board. NASA subsequently suspended the space shuttle flights for more than two years as it investigated the disaster. An investigation board determined that a large piece of foam fell from the shuttle's external tank and breached the spacecraft wing. The problem with foam had been known for years. I've studied this disaster quite uh, a bit, and uh, it was a real uh, failure on the part of engineering to make this right. The problem happened during liftoff. What happened was a piece of foam insulation on the large uh, tank, supercooled tank, broke off and flew back and hit the underside of the space shuttle's wing. And it hit with such a force and at such an angle that it punctured a hole in the bottom of that wing. That was never supposed to happen. Uh, Ever from that point forward, the shuttle was doomed to destruction upon its return because as it returned, hot atmospheric gases created by the uh, fast passage of the space shuttle through the atmosphere as it landed would enter into that wing and damage it and then destroy the aircraft. It, it uh, just broke it all into smithereens, as we might say. From the beginning, from the time that that space shuttle was birthed into space on that fateful day, although the astronauts didn't know it, they were doomed for however long their mission was, 10 days, 2 weeks. And uh, in a sense, it was a mercy they did not know that, although something perhaps could have been done But the illustration is appropriate in this sense. Just like humanity, just as soon as we're born, we're doomed to death. And there's nothing we can do about it. You know, there's not not special spy satellites that can fix us. There's not a a resupply mission or another space shuttle that can come up and get us and rescue us from our sin. It is indeed a problem from birth. The wages of sin is death. And so for people... The message tonight is titled, Salvation is Impossible, because sin is universal. Ecclesiastes 7.20 tells us there's not a man on earth who does good and does not sin. Everyone sins. We cannot 
change ourselves to become non-sinners. Uh, we are asked the, the, the rhetorical question in Jeremiah 13, can a leopard change his spots? No, we cannot. And so it is for people who are accustomed to do evil. How can they change to do good? That's not the case. Not good in the sight of God. Our nature is broken and we cannot fix it. To use another illustration, it's like all of us are in a lifeboat. We're just kind of clinging on to life. Every human is in that same lifeboat and there is no other human being who can help us. There's no helicopter pilots who can rescue us off the lifeboat. There are no scuba divers. There's no submarines that are going to come along. We're stranded in that lifeboat of sin and we have no help from the human race. No one of us can rescue ourselves. And sin has this built-in unavoidable natural consequence. Romans 6 tells us the wages of sin is death. You know, it's like when you, when you cut yourself accidentally. You know, naturally it hurts. When you sin, naturally it leads to the fruit of death. That punishment of the just judge. Beyond that, it causes damage, sin does, to the relationship between people, between husbands and wives, between people in the church, outside of the church, between nations. It causes damage in our, in our relationship to nature. Think of the curse. Not only would it be that it would be painful to bring forth children, but men would have to, by the sweat of their brow, bring forth food from the earth, which was meant to just bring it forth naturally and easily for them to enjoy. The, the earth would be infested with thorns, weeds, viruses that were harmful, bacteria. And so man's relationship with each other, man's relationship with nature, and worst of all, sin destroyed man's relationship with God. Even worse, salvation is impossible because every person has to address their own sin. Has to, has to make right their own sin. The Bible makes this clear, this principle, that the soul who sins, he shall die. Not another. The father is not punished for the sins of the son and the son is not punished for the sins of the father, but each one for his own iniquity must make accounting. You have to take it on yourself in accordance with the principle of holiness. God is holy and cannot accept a sin, sinful sacrifice. He requires a lamb without blemish. His eyes are too holy to look upon sin. Habakkuk 1.13 It's like trying to use dirt to clean up dirt if you're trying in your own sinfulness to clean up your own sin. It doesn't work that way. All kinds of human-originated sacrifices are insufficient because of what we've just talked about. In fact, in the Old Testament prophets in the book of Micah, the Bible indicates that burnt offerings, calves, thousands of rams, or great, amount of, great amounts of olive oil will not satisfy God. God's judicial sentence against sinners because of their sin cannot be satisfied by such things. Not even That passage even indicates not even the sacrifice of one's own child would suffice to pay for the rebellion of the sinner. Pagans, by the way, often did that years ago, centuries gone by, and with no good effect. No good effect whatsoever. There was nothing good that came out of child sacrifice. The same, of course, today. Sacrifice of children is done for convenience, not so much for the idols of, or deities, but for the convenience of those who bear them. 
Isaiah 64, 6, in fact, tells us that good works are as filthy rags before God. Are you beginning to see how impossible your situation was and is on your own? Good works cannot undo the infinite and eternal consequences of previous bad works. You know, water under the bridge, that, 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 that sin that has already gone by, you can't claw it back and make it to be undone. You know, you can't tell the judge after you, after you robbed the bank and shot up the bank tellers, well, I did a lot of other good stuff in my life. Doesn't that, that doesn't cut it. That doesn't pay for the sin that you have done, the harm that you have caused, the pain that you have created. None of that does. This is why sinners cannot redeem themselves. And perhaps a person would say, well, I'll sacrifice myself. I'll, I'll pay the penalty for my own sin. The only result of that would be the person's death and entrance into eternal condemnation because a finite sinner cannot make an infinite payment to a holy God in a finite amount of time. A finite person anyway is not a suitable holy sacrifice to the Lord our God. Even animal sacrifices were not sufficient before God. Uh, you know, they were only temporary. Remember Hebrews chapter 10? That great passage that reminds us of the nature of that sacrificial system. It says, The law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image, can never with those same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshippers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. It's like you're a child and you're cleaning your room. Say you share your room with your brother or your sister. And you're cleaning your room, getting the floor all nice and clean and your brother or sister is at the doorway taking gobs of Legos out of a bucket and throwing them on the floor as you're cleaning. And you're cleaning and you're cleaning and more and more stuff is being added. You can never clean all of that up because the sin just keeps coming. Right? Just like that. And so it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They only did in a temporary fashion. Like your cleaning of this area was only temporary until your brother ruined it again. When these sacrifices in the Old Testament were offered without an attitude of faith, it was even worse. God was sick of people coming before Him and offering sacrifices with no heart behind them. And so that proves to us that sacrifices had to be given in faith and it was the faith that made them operative in one's personal relationship with God. Well, what about keeping God's law? Is that possible? Could, could that do it? You know, people often say, well, I keep the Ten Commandments, which they don't, but they, th- they think they do. Or I, I'm a good person. I do what God requires. It's really only in a purely hypothetical way that somebody could do that. And in fact, the nature of man as a sinner precludes it even as a possibility. You know, when people say, well, it's hypothetically possible that you could get saved by keeping the law of God perfectly. But that's, that's kind of a, a strange statement. For people, it's impossible. It's not hypothetically possible. It's utterly impossible because our nature does not allow us to produce the kind of righteousness that God demands. By the law is only the knowledge of sin. 
So what can a man give then in exchange for his soul? Our Lord used those words. There are no good works. There's no personal sacrifice. There are no animal sacrifices. No other sacrifice of sinful human beings are sufficient. No good intentions. No acts of love. No moral reformation. No achievements how high. Nothing we can do can earn merit with God. The situation seems utterly impossible. Then how can a man be righteous before God? Is it possible? Job 25, verse 4, in fact, asks that question. How can a man be righteous with God, before God? Now, there's one or two other complications here. I'll share one with you. And and that is, from the Old Testament, we know that God had a plan to provide a Redeemer. We know that we celebrate Him tonight, on the night of uh, before His birth, we could say. But there was a complication because... The one who was prophesied to be Savior of the world was also to be Savior and King. Savior and King. In one person. Psalm 110 makes that very clear. That great prophecy that is one of the most quoted in the New New Testament from the Old Testament uh, says that Jesus would be made a priest according to the order of Melchizedek and the people would be volunteers in the day of His power. He would sit at the right hand of the majesty on high until his enemies were made his footstool and then he would rule over those enemies. So he's prophet or priest rather and king all in one and prophet too in one glorious person. But another impossibility arises at this very point. About 2,500 years ago, God had pronounced a curse on a man that was a king in Israel. His name was Jeconiah. And his descendants. God said that none of his descendants would prosper sitting on the throne of Israel. That's in Jeremiah 22. Now, Jeconiah's rejection of God did not condemn his sons. Remember, the soul that sins will die. But his sin did have consequences on later generations. We know this happens all the time. Parents who do bad things... uh, can encourage their children to do bad things or they can have bad consequences for them or if they uh, you know, get thrown in jail, then the child doesn't have a parent at home or, or they teach the child to do wicked things. Uh, sin has consequences multi-generationally. Not condemnation per se, but consequences. So God condemns this man Jeconiah and lays a curse upon him that was forever after that. And the New Testament tells us, in fact, in Matthew where we were reading and we looked at this the last time in the genealogy, it tells us that Joseph was a descendant of this Jeconiah. And so the promise of a priest-king seems to be in jeopardy because Joseph was the, quote, father, unquote, of Jesus. Adoptive father, of course. Is Jesus then tainted by this curse? Could he not rule over Israel because of this ancestral curse that had been laid upon his forefather Jeconiah? How could he fulfill his prophetic role if none of the descendants of Jeconiah would prosper sitting on the throne of Israel? So what? The hope of the world seems lost. No mere human can save us. We cannot save ourselves. The one who has prophesied seems to not meet one of the qualifications that because of the Jeconiah curse, something happened that solved all of these problems. 
And so our first heading, salvation is impossible, but with God. You're thinking already the words that I'm wanting you to think, I hope. You're saying, wait a second, salvation is not impossible because Jesus is is the Savior of the world. True enough. True enough. But have you stopped to consider, as we have done tonight, just how impossible your situation was? How utterly hopeless you are as a human, as a sinner, as a finite creature? There is no hope. We've gone through all the various ways that you could think to please God. No man can give anything in exchange for his soul. How can a man be right with God? But Matthew 19 says this. It says, and again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now when the disciples heard that, think of it. They were greatly astonished and said, who then can be saved. You know, it's almost like in order to be saved from sin, you have to recognize that you can't be saved from sin apart from one way and one way only. But Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And so we see in the historical record the way that God chose to make the impossible possible. And He did it with two key theological ideas that I want you to take away with you tonight. The first one is the one that we celebrate particularly this evening, and that is the incarnation. And the second is substitution. First of all, on the incarnation. It's the doctrine that expresses the Christian teaching of what happened when Jesus came into the world. You know, it was not just an easy thing for God in heaven to come down in flesh as a baby. I mean, we just kind of gloss over that and read it and it's a a nice cute story about a virgin giving birth and almost too fantastic to believe. It certainly is in in the eyes of the world, but what had to happen? Well, he was miraculously conceived and born of a virgin. Number one, to avoid the stain of sin. To avoid the stain of human sin. This is the miracle of the virgin conception and birth. It's not so that uh, you know, the father was missing and so the seed of sin was not passed to Jesus because Mary was just as much of a sinner as Joseph was. So that idea, that old kind of idea is to be set aside. What happened was that there was a miracle in which God used some of the genetic material of Mary and caused it to begin the process of cellular reproduction so that a new baby would be born miraculously. I can't even explain it. This is not the so-called immaculate conception. That's supposedly the conception of Mary herself when she was conceived to keep her from sin. No, we're talking about the miracle of Jesus' conception and birth, which is to keep sin from Him, not from His mother. His mother was a sinner. She referred to God as her Savior. And Jesus, she knew, was her Lord and Savior. And so, because He was born without the stain of human sin, this means that He could offer Himself in our place because he did not have any sin 
to pay for or that disqualified himself. He was indeed the perfect Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. So the incarnation guaranteed the stain of sin would not pass to Jesus. Secondly, the incarnation made Jesus of the lineage of David. Now, that's true through Solomon and then all the way down to Joseph, if we consider Joseph his father, his adopted father, not the biological father. But this was also true, according to Luke's Gospel, through his mother Mary. Believe it or not, Joseph was of the line of David and Mary was also of the line of David. An amazing, unexpected turn of events as you read that Luke 3 genealogy. And so this cleared Jesus of the Jeconiah curse because Jeconiah was in the line from David and Solomon down to Joseph. But David through Nathan down to Mary had no such curse laid upon it. And so Jesus is saved not only from the stain of human sin, but He is accepted from this ancestral curse. Thirdly, the virgin birth and incarnation was the means that allowed the pre-existing Son of God to enter into humanity. The Son of God, the person of the Godhead, entered into humanity that way. And here's, here's the kind of tidbit that you need to remember. When is a new person created? At conception, right? At conception. We hold that to be a truth dear to our hearts in this whole matter of abortion. But at conception, a new person springs into existence. But the person of the Son of God already existed before. So how do you get Him, could I say it reverently, shoehorned into humanity? I mean... Think of it. That's a big shoehorn. You have to take the infinite God and you have to squeeze Him into a package. I mean, it's crazy to think about how that could happen. But with, all things, but with God, all things right are possible. He has done it. And so, He avoids the stain of sin. He is avoiding the ancestral curse on Jeconiah and we avoid the creation of a new being, a new person with Jesus being conceived in this miraculous way. And so the incarnation was the way that God came down into humanity. Think about that. God became a man. That's the incarnation. By the incarnation also, the Son of God could once again dwell among His people. God did that in the Garden of Eden before the fall into sin, didn't He? He walked with them in the cool of the day and evidently fellowshiped with them in the opening days after day seven of the creation week, those first days of the new world creation. But that's long been gone. God did dwell with the people in, in the Shekinah glory in the tabernacle and in the temple, but by Ezekiel, He left. And for 580 plus years, almost 600 years, more than 600 years actually, there was no presence of God in Israel, not in any kind of special way, until the announcement was made to those poor shepherds that God has been born in human flesh. This is God's ultimate design, by the way. What's Jesus' other name? Emmanuel, God what? 
with us. We with God too, but God with us. And so for all eternity, Revelation 21 and 22 reveal to us that we will dwell with Him, we will see His face, we will serve Him, we will worship Him, we will be present with Him, He will be present with us. The Bible says that God will dwell with His people and His people will dwell with God. He will be their God and they will be His people. And so, in John chapter 1 and verse 14, the Bible says the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us like He did in the Shekinah glory, the Old Testament time, and like He did with Adam and Eve in the garden. And so that's what the incarnation accomplished, those four things. Uh, dwelling among His people, being saved from the stain of sin, accepted from the ancestral curse, and allowing the pre-existing Son of God to come into humanity without the creation of a new person. But secondly, not only the incarnation, but also the doctrine of substitution. Think about this. There's still one big problem. One big impossibility. What happened to the axiom that the soul that sins must die? You know, Does that weigh heavy on you? The soul that sins, that's you and me, must die. If there were no exceptions to that rule, we might as well just fold up church and go home. It is insurmountable. You know, uh, it's kind of like when you're in school, you have to take your own tests. You can't have your mom and dad come and take your test for you. You can't have your brother take your test for you, although I'm sure some twins have delighted to do that from time to time. Yeah, you have to take your own test. You have to take your own punishment. You cannot get your sister or brother to take your punishment for you in a legitimate way. Here's what happened. God graciously permitted that a substitute could make the infinite payment for your sin. Now, He modeled this in the Old Testament. He didn't do it yet in the Old Testament, but He gave a model for it. What was that model? It was the animal sacrifice system. Remember what the worshiper had to do with the sacrifice before he killed it? What did he do? He laid his hand on it. Symbolically transferring his guilt from himself to that animal which became his substitute and died in his place. That was the cost, the price, the wages of his sin. Another example is the scapegoat in that once a year special service around the Day of Atonement, the scapegoat. One goat was killed as a sacrifice. The other, the sins of the people were laid upon it and it was taken out far away from the camp, out into the wilderness. And it became the goat that took away the sin of the people and carried that guilt into the wilderness. Jesus Christ is that perfect scapegoat. The infinite Lamb who can take away the sins not only of one, not only of two, but indeed of many. And in fact, of infinitely many people because of the nature of the work of Christ. And thus, it can be said that Jesus, who came at Christmas, died for our sins. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. By the chastisement of, the chastisement of, of our peace was upon Him. He came and preached peace to those that were far off and those that were near because that peace He made in His own body on the tree. 
He took our place. We should sometime review again in great depth the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement. It is critical to our faith. You can have an incarnation. You can have all of that. But if the soul that sins must die and there's no exception to that, there's no gracious other way that your sin can be handled, then you're cooked. You're done. Zapped. Finished. But there's one more thing. There's the incarnation at Christmas. There's the doctrine of substitution. But there's one more little thing, and that is you have to reach out your hand in faith, turning from your sin and symbolically, if you will, putting your sin upon the scapegoat, the Lamb of God. Turning to Christ, turning to the Lord and Savior, and He will take away your sin. Incarnation, substitution, and personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As a result of that, the Christian's sins are placed behind the back of God. The Christian's sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. And the Christian's sins are cast into the depths of the deepest ocean. Micah and the book of the Psalms. After all is said and done, salvation is possible. Not by our own devices, but by the incarnation and the substitution of God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to His name. He is the reason for Christmas. My friends, don't ex Christ out of Christmas. Christmas is Christmas because it starts with C-H-R-I-S-T, not X. Yeah, He is the Savior of the world. And He turned an otherwise impossible situation into one that was indeed more than possible. But for us who believe, it is reality. And for that, we give Him thanks. Let us pray. Our God in heaven, we thank You for the privilege that You have given to us tonight to study Your Word, to sing, to offer testimonies of thanksgiving, to hear special music. And we ask that You would bless each one who is participating tonight with those blessings of Christmas, those blessings of the incarnation and of substitution and of personal faith, and a great heart's desire to know God, and to know the power of Christ's resurrection in their own life and to live for Him. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that brings us to the close of our service already. We've been here for over an hour worshiping and hearing the Word. It's been a great encouragement to me. I hope to you as well. To you at home, thank you for participating. And uh, if you're end up watching the service another time on YouTube. We uh, pray God's blessing on you as well. May God keep you, bless you, and give you peace. The peace of Christmas. peace of the knowledge that salvation is indeed possible, more than possible. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's a certainty. Amen. All right.
Good night. Merry Christmas to all.